chapter 11, and I want to begin reading at verse 14. <coughs> Luke chapter 11, beginning at 14, I'm reading from the New King James Bible. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. Father God, we do come before your word. And I pray that you would enable us to, as the scriptures say, to tremble at your word and to live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it and accompany your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, may we come from this place changed men, women, and children. Father, may we be encouraged by the strength of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've taken two weeks to look at the incredible privilege that we have of presenting our case before the courtroom of heaven and seeking restitution or justice against Satan. And uh, some of you have mentioned to me that this has just blown your mind. It has revolutionized your thinking and even your prayer life. And I've been really encouraged to see how quickly some of you have begun implementing uh, what we talked about in those two sermons. Now, as frequently happens, uh, a sermon will answer a bunch of questions, but it'll raise a whole pile more questions. And I've had numerous questions since those two sermons. And I thought, well... I wasn't planning to give this sermon. There's four or five other foundation sermons that I want to deal with, but I thought I should at least give an overview of demonology. Demonology is the biblical doctrine of demons, and I should try to give a little bit of the ins and outs of uh, what it means to plunder Satan's kingdom. This is another passage that talks about plundering, and we've, in a sense, been talking about plundering for the last two sermons that uh, we looked at. And... Uh, when we were, I forget if it was the beginning of this year or the la end of last year, the men's uh, meeting went through an in-depth study of uh, demonology. And uh, so there is a ton of stuff you're going to recognize that we're not even going to touch on today. I want to deal especially with two points. The first one is that demons are real and they are powerful 
and we must not underestimate the power of the, the demonic. And the second point is that the victory of Jesus over demons is real. And I tell you, there's a lot of Christians that doubt that. You know, they say, oh yeah, sure, it was real back then, but is it really real right now? And that every believer has access to that power and to that victory. And so there's no reason to fear the evil one. And so you could think of the first two sermons that we dealt with the demonic, you could think of it as, what do you do when you've lost? Okay, you've gone into battle and Satan has come after you and, uh, you know, you've been robbed of this or of that. And uh, we said, okay, you can take Satan to the courtroom of heaven and we showed you how to get back what Satan has robbed from your life. This deals now with, we don't have to wait till we've been attacked to go after Satan. We're commissioned to plunder every square inch of planet Earth, to plunder it all uh, from the devil. And so we're, we're going to be talking about the, some of the process of Satan's strongholds being plundered. Now, as I mentioned, there's a ton that we're not going to deal with, and that's okay. Maybe it'll motivate you to do some reading, and I can give you some recommended readings uh, to study on your own. But let's look, first of all, at the reality and the power of demons. The way many evangelicals fail to think about the demonic almost ever, unless it's brought to their attention, shows to me they're really not taking seriously Paul's admonition in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, we wrestle with principalities and powers. That the only thing that you're up against is the bureaucracies of this world, you know, political battles and things. All you're looking at is the flesh and blood. You're missing where the real battle is going on, is what Paul talks about. And many evangelicals go to one extreme or the other. You know, they see a demon under every bush and everything's demonic. Or they go to the other extreme and they reject it. In fact, I've got a book in my library. I just checked it out again this past week where this evangelical denies that there even is such a thing as demons, as literal beings, he says, oh, that's just a metaphor. That's a metaphor for um, uh, mental illness or false doctrines or different things like that. And I was just shocked and flabbergasted. In fact, I, I keep getting shocked and flabbergasted at the old-fashioned doctrines that keep getting ditched by evangelicals. So I want to start just looking. Are demons real? Or are they simply metaphors of disease and institutional evil? Well, point A shows all kinds of ways in which demons are described as having personality. Verse 24 records a sentence that one demon spoke. And then verse 26 shows eight demons communicating with each other. Uh, other passages show that they communicated with Christ by speaking through the vocal cords. And if you don't have an outline, we've got a whole mess of outlines you can get from the back there. Uh, but speaking through the vocal cords of an individual, but whether in the body or outside of the body, demons are able to communicate. In fact, this one here is a demon who's already left the body, and yet he is still communicating in verse 24. And all that shows they're not just powers or emanations. Uh, they are creatures that have rationality and language, and they use that communication against Christ's kingdom. So don't think that Satan doesn't know what's going on in our congregation. Now, he's probably got all kinds of tattletales, you know, who spread the news of different things that are happening here. Last week, I was listening when I was uh, riding up to Des Moines, uh, Acts 19 and verse 15. It talks about the sons of Sceva. You maybe remember the story. Here are seven sons of a Jewish guy by the name of Sceva. They watched Paul casting out demons, and they were fascinated with this. They thought, this is so cool. So they go up to a demon-possessed man and they say, we exorcise you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Here's what the demon says to them. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And he pounced on them, shredded the clothes off them, and they left the house bleeding. 
ran out of the house pleading. But I found that phrase interesting. Paul, I know. Why do these demons know them? Well, I think there's a lot of communication going on. You know, Paul was causing a big ruckus as he's invading Satan's territory. And I think the moment any individual or any ministry is having an impact into Satan's kingdom, there are all kinds of messages going out as communication goes around the demons. And when an individual is failing to have an impact upon his Satan's kingdom, and he is compromising and he is vulnerable in some ways, demons pick up on that. I think there is communication that goes, uh, goes amongst them. So don't underestimate the enemy. Second, they are self-conscious. The demon in verse 24 speaks in the first person saying, I will return to my house from which I came. So he's kind of soliloquizing, you know, talking to himself. And that speaks of self-consciousness, a characteristic of personality. Furthermore, he's remembering things from the past and he's making plans for the future. And in the same way, demons are not idiots today. They know probably more about your past than you remember about your past, unless you have been keeping them at bay with spiritual warfare and you have been keeping them at a distance. And, uh, and in that case, then they probably don't know uh, a whole lot uh, 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 about you. But they also know about the past in terms of your ancestors and their sins. We talked uh, uh, last time I, I preached, I showed how there are different ways in which we can provide legal grounds for Satan to mess around with us. Well, our ancestors can also provide legal grounds for them because we're covenantally connected to our ancestors. We can't get away from that covenant. And so if they've provided legal grounds and we have never cut off and renounced the sins of our ancestors, put them under the blood of Christ and said, Lord, whatever those sins may be, we renounce them and we take away any legal ground that Satan may have, those demons can continue to afflict and to torment us. Scripture says the sins of the parents are visited to the third and the fourth generation, right? But it doesn't have to be visited. They can be cut off through the blood of Christ, and I think we need to consciously do that. Um, now, another aspect of personality is that this demon gets frustrated. He wants to find something that satisfies him, to find rest, and it says in verse 24 he can't do that. And I love this. I love this. Here's a demon that's frustrated, and that's what... I'm hoping, you know, there's a ton of demons out there that are frustrated because of the things that this congregation is doing. And that should be our goal, to nonstop in every way be frustrating the purposes of the enemy. Amen? Okay, another thing that shows that these demons are not just metaphors is that the demon uh, is traveling. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of the man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. Finding none, he says, I will return. So there's a going out, there's a returning. Verse 25, when he comes, there is more travel. Verse 26, then he goes and he takes seven others. And then those seven, they come back and they're traveling to this man to take uh, that man on. And demons continue to travel today. And just think of the logic of that. Just because America has not been that influenced by the demonic in ages past does not mean She is not influenced by demons today. In fact, all of the evidence shows that America is becoming overrun with the demonic. All kinds of demons uh, coming uh, coming into into our territory. (coughs) Um, Demons can travel. And verse 24 says that they're seeking for a place where they can settle down. They're looking for an opportunity. And so they see a husband and a wife, you know, that have gotten into an argument and are very bitter against 
each other and they're rubbing their hands and saying ah good here's an opportunity for us to influence this family and then they see the husband and the wife asking forgiveness of each other and they say rats we're going to have to go on and they wander on this other family they see a child you know that's in rebellion against his parents and uh they say oh great this is perfect because rebellion is a sin of witchcraft we're going to get in here and then the child is confronted and the child asks forgiveness of god and of his parents and that demon says rats i gotta keep on looking that's exactly what was going on in job chapter one it says that satan was wandering to and fro in the earth you know and, and is it first peter or is it second peter it says he's as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour okay he's wandering everywhere now the interesting thing about job chapter one is that he was frustrated because god had put a hedge around job's life and around his family's life right let me read that let me read that verse to you if i can find it here he complains to god have you not made a hedge around him around his household and around all that he has on every side and so he had no opportunity to attack well let me tell you something in the new covenant there is even less opportunity for satan to be attacking god's people why because he has been cast out of the heavenlies and he can no longer be the accuser of the brethren accusing us before the father like he accused Job. and so there is even uh, less reason and now for that to happen unless we give him some vulnerability and i think the issue of demonic travel has been underestimated in some circles you know in ethiopia when i was growing up when demon on more than one occasion when demons were cast out of an individual they indicated that they were going to go overseas in fact uh, witch doctors who had been involved in the demonic very familiar with the demonic became saved they indicated that this had been going on what was it through the early 60s i think that they had been going over overseas why why were they doing that well maybe because of england and america sending so many missionaries to africa satan is maybe thinking we've got to counteract the influence of uh, those countries that are sending missionaries into africa we don't know we don't know but we do know this passage indicates at least some demons travel we need to factor that in to our our concepts of spiritual warfare fourth each demon has a separate identity verse 26 speaks of eight demons communicating with each other they're strategizing on how to take this guy on uh, verse 14 speaks of a demon that has a specialty he's called a mute demon mute means you can't talk okay and so it's a demon that keeps people from being able to talk and demons i have many demons have been given specialties by satan in terms of what their focus of work uh, needs to be other scriptures speak of demons of uncleanness demons of deception if you look in hosea chapters 4 and 5 you will see there were demons that were leading israelites into adultery um there were demons who specialized in bringing disease or various types of temptation so there's this huge army of unseen beings that have specialty and that are individualized they are different people different individuals fifth these demons have varying degrees of wickedness look at verse 26 then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself okay just like humans have varying degrees of skill and understanding and wickedness demons have varying levels of skill understanding and wickedness as well and so just because a demon that you have been confronting has not been able to pierce through your armor does not mean he's not going to go and take you know other people who are more able to try to gang up against you it's something we need to be vigilant uh, vigilant about okay so they have separate identity fifth 
these, oh yeah, I've already dealt with number five, six. These demons are organized in such a way, some are rulers and others are followers. Uh, verse 15 speaks of Beelzebul, or the, the King James in the text has Beelzebub, um, both referring to the same thing, as being the ruler of the demons. And Christ not only acknowledges the presence of such a ruler, but he indicates that this kingdom is an organized kingdom organized kingdom now we're not going to go into the various levels of organization the scripture talks about uh, for the demonic but suffice it to say it is so well organized that satan rules over a universal kingdom all around this earth not universal i guess global a global kingdom because i believe that satan really is restricted uh to the earth and uh uh, so I think you should see step by step that there is no way that these could just be metaphors Now you might be curious as to how many demons there are in his kingdom And I think there's a couple of hints of it here just the word kingdom indicates there has to be quite a few demons But the name Beelzebub or Beelzebul is also a hint that uh, there is something more Beelzebub means Lord of the flies now in the Middle East you had flies everywhere. You guys probably just don't realize how in normal societies where there isn't the kind of cleanliness that we have here, man, they just swarm everywhere. Out in Ethiopia, clouds of flies, trillions of flies. And I think what an appropriate title for a Beelzebub uh, because other scriptures indicate there are unbelievable numbers of demons. Like flies, or in Revelation it likens them to locusts, uh, such a big... Uh, big cloud of locusts that it darkens the sun uh, one time in Bingham Academy when I was growing up in Ethiopia There was a cloud of locusts that came out and it just looked like night and I ran out into it and ran back pretty quickly Because they were scratching all over you, you know kicking with their legs and whatnot And after they were gone there wasn't any grass any leaves anywhere I mean they just stripped the whole place bare but trillions of locusts that were out there And so th this is the kind of imagery so I want us to get a little bit of a picture of how many demons there are we know from Revelation 12 that demons comprise one-third of all of the angels. So there are two-thirds good angels, and there's one-third evil angels. And so we want to look, how many good angels are there? And we don't know exactly in the Scripture, but there are some hints. Daniel 7, verse 10 speaks of there being millions and millions and hundreds of millions, but it uses an expression that just could be indefinite. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, you know, it, it's the idea that's innumerable. Well, that word is actually used to describe angels in Hebrews 12, verse 22. It speaks of an innumerable company of angels, too many for any human to be able to count. Matthew 18, verse 10 indicates every child of a believer has some angel assigned to that that child and probably more because it's a singular child but it it talks about uh, 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 well actually it does then go to plural so it's at least one angel but it talks about their angels always see uh, the, 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 the face of my father in heaven okay now let's transfer that to demons tons of good angels mark 5 9 and 15 indicates that Satan had so many demons available to him he was willing to waste an entire legion of demons on one man, 6,000 demons. So he must have tons of demons to go around. Um, Revelation 9 shows multitudes of angels arising from the bottomless pit upon the earth, and I believe that that was prior to 70 A.D. as a judgment upon Israel. 
where uh, all of these demons were unleashed uh, upon the land. And it says again that it's like locusts covering, blotting out the sun, uh, indicating again the massive amount of demons that were there. One of the contingents that Revelation 9 goes on to talk about that was just stationed at the Euphrates, and they're clearly demonic angel warriors there, one of those contingents was made up of 200 million demons, and Revelation speaks of other contingents of demons as well. So in some places of the earth, they probably do swarm like flies. I believe that some of the thickest places where demons are concentrated are in the power centers of the nation. Washington, D.C., any person who goes to Washington, D.C. to work in the Senate or the Congress or as a judge, they need to be under continual prayer that uh, they would not be penetrated by Satan's forces because I just see that place as being a thick cloud of demons hanging over there trying to take them on. Any other places that are influential, demons go after. For the example, state capitals. They go after judges. They'll go after pastors. Uh, they try to go after any way that they can have a quick avenue of influence because they tend to be, uh, for power religion, something that's quick and speedy. And uh, so that's something to be uh, aware of as well. But every one of those demons does his utmost to attack Christ's kingdom. They have possessions, point seven, that they seek to capture. Uh, obviously, the poor man in verse 14 was captured for some time. Verse 21 speaks of the demon who guards his own palace, and it mentions his goods. So there's the person plus the thing that the person has. They're all claimed by Satan. This is mine. This is my territory, just as Christ also claims all things for himself. And then finally, demons are called angels and evil spirits. And so to question the reality of demons, you'd have to question the reality of all angels because they're part of the angels uh, that uh, God had initially created and a third of them uh, fell. So we need to take the demonic seriously. It is real. I had one lady at my uh, former church who uh, told me that she didn't like me preaching on demons. She says it made her too scared. But my response is, hey, ignorance is not bliss because if you are unaware of the demonic, you are vulnerable. You're vulnerable to their attacks. Paul says we are not ignorant of his devices, referring to Satan, and we should not be ignorant of his devices either. Okay, let's look a little bit at their work. Christ goes to great lengths to show that demons do indeed have a purpose. They are united. Now, let me just pause and interject for a moment. I don't, for a moment, believe demons like each other. <laughs> uh, I don't, for a moment, believe that there isn't bickering and that there isn't some fighting that goes on amongst demons because they are sinful, and the more wicked they are, the more self-centered they are, and the more likely they're going to have their feelings hurt, and there's going to be... Uh, jostling, and, and I think God uses that to his own purposes. But one thing that does unite all of these demons is they all hate God and they are all opposed to God and doing everything they can to resist God and to resist his kingdom. And so <coughs> you'll find in uh, verse 23 that Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. There can be no neutrality. All demons are against Christ because they are not with him. And if they're against Christ, you better believe they're against every follower of Christ as well. They're against you as well. So don't be surprised if they try to hinder, hold back, frustrate your kingdom work. Don't be surprised with bureaucratic red tape and, and with uh, a hatred from men, resistance, technical problems. We should not be surprised. Secondly, demons can work both inside and outside of a person. 
Now, how this works, we're not sure, but verse 14 speaks of the demon who was somehow mute, made mute by that demon, whether he controlled his mind, controlled his tongue, we're not told, but somehow that demon controlled him and he lived inside of that person. Verses 24 through 26 speak of an evil spirit who goes into a person as a dwelling, likens it to a house, okay? He lives in that person. And Satan's goal, according to verse 21, is total ownership, total control. And if he can't do that, he's going to at least try to influence to the degree that he is able. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Now, why would his goods be in peace? Well, it's because God's not warring against him at that particular moment. Um, The moment you move your family into a pagan neighborhood you're the first christian in in that neighborhood it's at that moment that warfare begins because now the elect angels who are accompanying your family have gone into that neighborhood and uh where there are no uh there is no opposition from from uh, christ's camp then they're at peace there isn't anything that they that they are uh, facing that that worries them Now, all of that implies that whether a person is possessed or he is not possessed is immaterial. Satan continues to control them. For example, when a person is outside the church, Scripture says that person, you know, he's excommunicated. Scripture says that person is handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. So, you know, in that case, that individual was eventually going to be saved. But he's in Satan. He's handed over to Satan. Satan can do whatever he wants with that individual. Here's what um, Christ told the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. Now, they weren't possessed, not yet anyway. I think the closer it got to 70 AD, the more possession you saw. They were not possessed, but they were still under his influence, according to that verse. See, the moment somebody becomes a Christian, he becomes an enemy of Satan. There can be no neutrality, according to verse 23. In fact, the first gospel promise that you run across is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And what's, what's in that promise is that there's going to be enmity. God says that he's going to make the woman to be at enmity with Satan, and Satan will be at enmity with the woman with uh, her seed. And so that's a gospel promise of what would happen through Christ, but also what's going to happen to all of the followers of Christ and, and the the... the, the 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 children uh the children of uh, uh, uh of eve okay let's move on to the next one third demons seek to capture and guard areas uh, verse 21 likens satan to a strong man who guards his own palace satan tries to capture territory capture people set up strongholds so that those areas and those people are impervious to the gospel and that's exactly what uh, scripture indicates happens let me just quickly read you a, a scripture second corinthians 4 verse 4 i jotted in the margin um this morning didn't have time to write it out but second corinthians 4 verse 4 says whose minds the god of this age is blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god should shine on them which means if you're trying to confront these strongholds and you do not have the power of Almighty God with you, you don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit, you're not gonna, your witnessing is going to not to amount to anything because God's blinded them. They're in strongholds. They're impervious to the gospel. 
And so uh, we're going to be seeing how important it is to be making sure that we are armed. We cannot in ourselves uh, get through the strongholds they are guarding. Another thing that demons seek to do is to destroy God's creation. They hate God and they hate the image of God that's in man. And so they try to mar God's image. Anything that reminds them of God, they try to destroy. And in this case, they make this guy so he can't talk. They make him mute. They also seek to cause disorder. Verse 23 says, And he who does not gather with me scatters. See, there is attempt on the part of Satan to scatter and divide anything that God unites, whether it's in the family or whether it's in the church. Um, verse 25 says that the demon comes back to the man who is rescued from the demon. When he finds, he says, when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Well, that's the opposite of the way it was left. It wasn't swept, and it was in disorder, right? So his whole goal is to bring any kind of disorder that he can. Whenever you see churches that are filled with cacophony and disorder and uh, disarrangement, you know that this is not of God because God in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says he is not the God of disorder but of order. And even if they say these are spiritual gifts, you know, that they are manifesting, they cannot be from God because God does not manifest that kind of disorder. Verse 33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so Satan seeks to scatter, he seeks to cause disorder in any way that he can. And then finally, this demon was exploring areas of vulnerability. Now, verses uh, 25 and following shows him investigating. He's come to this home, you know, that he'd been kicked out of to see, okay, is there any possibility I can get back into this home again? And he finds, hey, Jesus isn't there. The Holy Spirit isn't there. There's nothing in that home that's going to prevent me from being able to take this guy on again. Uh, the house is empty. And unless the Spirit has come in to guide, to empower, to protect, to illuminate, uh, he's going to be subject to Satan. And what the image here that you find in verse 25 is, is a person who has been freed from a demon, but now he's engaging in self-reformation. Sanctification is way different than self-reformation. The Pharisees sought to cleanse their lives in their own power, and their own strength, and it never got to the root issues. It was just an avoidance type of thing, you know, sweeping stuff out of the house, but never replacing it with the power of God. And they still belonged to Satan. They were utterly powerless against him. Um, these demons recognize this man's power, uh, powerless. They can take him any time. And let's read verses uh, 24 and following. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And, you know, we don't know about the dry places, if that's, uh, you know, as opposed to the moisture of the body and dry out there, or if it's talking about frustration in some sense. But he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I come. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now that principle, that the last state of the man is worse than the first, does not just apply in cases of possession. It applies to any type of situation. For example, in John 5:14, this is a man that's not possessed, but he was lame and he was healed by Christ. And Jesus says, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. And so this vulnerability issue that the demons are constantly investigating, it applies to, to all, all people. And this passage indicates 
they're evaluating in our lives. And so all this is to say demons are real, they are powerful, and if I stop my sermon right there, it would be pretty scary stuff, like, okay, you know, we got to watch out for stuff we can't watch out for, you know. How do you even see where demons are? You can't. But praise Jesus, we are not alone. We are with Christ, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Point two says, The victory of Christ over demons is real. Every believer has access to that same victory. So our passage in Luke 11 is not telling us how wonderful and how powerful we are. It's telling us about how wonderful and how powerful Christ is. And if we don't have his power working in us and through us, we're vulnerable. We are vulnerable. But when we have him with us, we need not fear. In fact, the passage indicates there that, that his armor has been taken away from him. Every time you wield the sword of the Spirit, you bring wounding to demons. They get gun-shy when you start using the sword of the Spirit against them. Why? Because their armor has been taken away. And so they are vulnerable. Christ is presently plundering Satan's kingdom through you and through me. James says he can be resisted. Resist the devil, and he will flee from me. And so what I want to do, I want to look a little bit at, at um, why this casting out of a demon was such a phenomenal evidence of Christ's victory present even today. First of all, it was an evidence that the kingdom had come, that something brand new was happening. In the Gospels, for the first time in human history, as far as we know, at least in terms of biblical history, Demons had been successfully cast out of people. Now, we take it for granted nowadays, you know, that Christians can cast demons out of individuals, but they were just amazed back then. Look at verse 14. After he cast them out, it says, The multitudes marveled. They marveled. This was a, a strange thing to them. Or as Mark says, they were astonished beyond measure. This is something brand new. And I want you to turn with me to Matthew 9. Keep your fingers in Luke 11. Uh, but I, wanna, I want you to see a couple of passages that filled us out a little bit. Matthew chapter 9, and let's see here. Let's read verses 32 through 34. <coughs> As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. <coughs> something brand new. They'd never seen something like that happen in Israel. Turn to Mark chapter 1. And uh, what we're seeing with these two verses is this is a transition in human history. This was a period when something brand new was happening as the kingdom was ushered in. Mark chapter 1 and verse 27. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And they were flabbergasted with this new thing that was happening. Now, it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Zechariah prophesied that when Messiah sets up his kingdom, that he would begin casting out demons and cleansing the land of unclean spirits. He talks about that in, in, in Zechariah. And uh, that is why their request in verse 16 is such a sham. It says, And others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Well, Christ goes on to show how, 
uh, ridiculous of a request that is the greatest sign that they could even ask for is his casting out of demons that the, the, the kingdom of God had come look at verse 20 but if I cast out demons with the finger of God surely the kingdom of God has come upon you okay the casting out of demons is par excellence the sign that the kingdom has come we're not waiting you know for a couple thousand years for the kingdom to be set up no he says the kingdom has come otherwise we wouldn't have been able to cast out demons all throughout this interim period uh, the kingdom has indeed um, has indeed come. <clears throat> Matthew twelve twenty two through twenty three shows that at least some of the people recognize this. When he cast out a demon, it says the multitudes were amazed and said, "Could this be the son of David?" Okay, they knew about those prophecies. Casting out a demon—that's something the Messiah is going to do when he establishes his kingdom and so to me this is very exciting it means we're in the time of the kingdom it's in uh, then point three it's in the time when satan's kingdom is progressively going to begin to fall matthew words it this way but if i cast out demons by the spirit of god surely the kingdom of god has come upon you or else how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then he will plunder his house now it adds the words or else and those words are clear if the kingdom has not come there's no way that these demons could be cast out or else how can they cast out these demons and so the ongoing work of binding the hand of satan is proof positive we are living in the period of co kingdom conquest and it's a time when satan's kingdom is progressively falling and being plundered now here's the irony so many christians think exactly the opposite they think uh you know we're on the losing side and we're just holding out as long as we can in this fort and the indians are all surrounding us you know and shooting flaming arrows and before we know it we're going to be overwhelmed and then christ is going to bail us out and they're looking for a champion that can fight with goliath because goliath is there taunting them and telling them that there is no way that they will be able to fight that he's going to feed their carcasses to the dogs you know and to the vultures and what we need to realize is that a greater than david has already come and his name is Jesus, and he has dealt a death blow to the head of the serpent. He has already bound the strong man, and we are simply in the stage of plundering his house. Now, isn't that encouraging? To me, it's an encouraging thought. Now, if you skip over point B and just look at the last section, I'm, I'll get back to B, but I want to just very quickly give you the 13 evidences of the triumph of Christ's kingdom through believers right now. And if you want more, I got way more than 13 points, but they couldn't fit on the page. Uh, I printed out a, a big long page of other scriptures along these lines. Uh, okay, Luke 11:20 indicates that Satan has been bound in some way by Christ's power. We don't have to debate on exactly in what way he's bound, but he's bound in some way. 2 Thessalonians 2:6 indicates his working has been restrained. Hebrews 2:14 in the New American Standard says he himself also likewise partook of the same. He's referring to our human nature that through death not through the second coming that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil colossians 2:15 indicates that when jesus ascended to the right hand of the father he did something devastating to the armor of satan and by the way read Re revelation 12 sometime and you'll see that the time that michael the archangel is cast out of heaven is when jesus is caught at the man child you know that that satan tries to kill he's caught up to heaven into his throne 
So that's when Satan, there's a huge war in the heavenlies, Michael and his angels fighting against Satan and his angels. They're cast down to the earth, and then they begin to persecute the saints. So that's the, the context. And here's what Colossians says about, about uh, what happened at that point. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now get that phrase, having disarmed principalities and powers. Is that not exactly what Luke 11, verse 22 says? But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted. Colossians says he's been disarmed. In Luke 10, verse 18, Christ says, I saw Satan fall. Verse 19 says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Incredibly encouraging words. Romans 16, 20, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Did he do that? He did. He conquered Rome. Rome was persecuting Christians in those first three centuries intensely. And man, you were not a rice Christian. You had to be thinking pretty seriously before you became a Christian because you might get fed to the lion. And yet Christianity during that, that incredible period spread so powerfully that by the time of Constantine, over half, over 50% of the empire, according to secular uh, historians, had become Christian. Yes, Satan was crushed crushed under the feet of those Roman Christians back in the first uh, uh, three centuries. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he is progressively destroying Satan's work. 1 John 3.8 says, This is the purpose for his first coming, not just his second coming. It says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, past tense, was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. James 4, 7 says, Satan can successfully be resisted by us. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then the verses in point 12 indicate that the authority Christ had over demons has been transferred to believers. So it's not just all authority over demons has been given to the 12 disciples in Luke 9, but all that authority over demons was given to the 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10. And then in Mark 14, in other passages, he indicates till the end of the age that authority has been given to believers. So I want to end by looking at the steps under point B that describe the how. How should we exercise Christ's authority and his victory over darkness? Because we don't have the power in ourselves. First thing we must do is pray for the Spirit's power. And the first three sections of this chapter deal with prayer. Lord's Prayer, verses 1 through 4. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Uh, verses 5 through 8 is a prayer, illustration of a friend coming at midnight. Then verses 9 through 13, admonition, ask, seek, and knock. And then look at verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So pray for the Holy Spirit's empowering. And by the way... It, in the warfare booklet that I uh, hand out that has a lot of those warfare prayers, that's the first prayer in there. It's a prayer for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you need to have faith that Christ is stronger than Satan. A lot of Christians doubt that. Well, they believe, yeah, he was stronger back then. But is he really stronger than Satan, you know, in my life? And so that's a, a good place to be in when we recognize I'm weak, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling helpless. And that makes me realize I can do, uh, without me, Christ said, you can do nothing. But faith says and must say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
We have to be able to say that. And um, when we are ready to throw in the towel and to call it quits, we are denying in our practice that Christ really is the stronger man, the stronger than the strong man. We're denying that. Satan will seek to bluster and intimidate you just like Goliath tried to bluster and intimidate the, the, uh, the Israelites. But this passage says Satan's power has been bound and we need to be convinced of that. Let me just give you a story because some of you are falling asleep. Yezu Das was an evangelist in India. And uh, <coughs> he came to this one village that he was just shocked at the degree of demonism that was rampant everywhere. And the witch doctors there had been casting spells upon people, and I'm a strong believer. People can cast spells. Um, that's not just hokey pokey. That's uh, something that's very clear in the Minor Prophets. It talks about the, uh, those necromancers and others who cast spells upon others. And he had witnessed that. Uh, there, were, there were sheep and cattle that had been killed. Individuals had been killed shortly after this. And so he started preaching in the marketplace, and he had a very receptive audience because these people were living under the fear and dominion of Satan, and many people were coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Well, this infuriated the witch doctors because they were losing their grip over these people. And so the witch doctors came to Yezu Das and they said, get out of town or we're going to send our gods to kill you and your wife and your children. Well, he was not intimidated. Uh, he, he said that God had sent him here and he prayed for God to encamp round about him, to send his angels to protect him from these demonic attacks. And shortly thereafter, some of these witch doctors came and they said to him, what, what's your secret power? And he was kind of puzzled and didn't know what they were talking about. And here's what they said. This is the first time that our power did not work. After doing the puja, we asked the spirits to go and kill your family, but the spirits came back and told us that they could not approach you or your family because you were always surrounded by fire. Then we called more powerful spirits to come after you, but they too returned, saying, not only were you surrounded by fire, but angels were also around you all the time. And so Yezu Das, he started preaching to these guys. He realized God just opened these people wide open, and he talked about their sin, their rebellion against Almighty God, who indeed is greater than their gods. And these people were so pricked in their consciences that the witch doctors literally fell on the ground. They were weeping and, and um, confessing their sins, became Christians. And there were hundreds of people in that village who became But he did not because he realized greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world and God has called me and commissioned me to penetrate into satanic darkness. If the only thing that we do is what is comfortable to do, we're not doing what God has called us to do. He's called us to take on the strongholds of Satan. And so he was a real encouragement to others to keep on going on. Now, does that mean we're not going to receive beatings and martyrdom? No, it means we're probably going to receive opposition from Satan. That's why we gave the last two sermons first, right? When Satan comes after us and uh, some of our number become killed by him, then we say, Lord, take it out of his hive, you know, four new sheep for everyone that is martyred until he finally gives up on dealing. So this is a whole package deal here, but the scripture indicates even through our death, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. Revelation 12, 11 words it this way. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And that is exactly where Christ wants us to be, out and out for Jesus. Not where we are loving our lives so much that we are tempted to deny Christ, but where we love Jesus so much that we will deny our lives if it comes to that. We need to be out and out for Jesus. Verse 23 says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not out and out for the Lord, automatically you're serving Satan's principles, even if you're a Christian, because Christians can be instruments of unrighteousness. Christians can be tools of the devil. Did you know that Simon Peter, that, <coughs> that um, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church likes to say is uh, the first pope? By the way, I always find it humorous that the first pope had a mother-in-law. <laughs> you know, he was married. Uh, anyway, we won't get into that, but, and that's always a danger going down rabbit trails, but uh, what was I even talking about? <laughs> Oh, well, we'll go on. He who is not with me is against me. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that Peter was used of the devil, wasn't he? Um, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. What do you see? I think he saw Satan using Peter, who is a loved disi disciple, but he saw Satan using Peter to try to dissuade him from going to the cross. So we need to be dedicated unreservedly. Another protection mentioned in this passage is the need to guard your relationships with others. Verse 17 says, He, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom, and I want you to notice that word every, every kingdom, does that include God's kingdom? Yes. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. So that means it's not just Satan that needs to worry about this whole area of being united in their front against us. We need to be united as well. First Peter 3 says that when a husband is divided against his wife, they need to get that patched up real quickly. And if they don't, here's the result. That your prayers may not be hindered. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we must forgive brothers who ask forgiveness, quote, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Ephesians 4.26 warns us, don't let the sun go down in your anger, lest we give an opportunity to the devil. So we need to guard our relationships. If we fail to guard them, then we're not going to have the united front, nor will we even be able to have the individual front against Satan. Fifth, guard your personal walk of holiness. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. Uh, what is that rest that he is seeking there? One translation has it, he's seeking for a place of rest. Another has, he's seeking for a place to say, stay. Satan is looking for some foothold that can enable him to stay with an individual and even believers can give him that foothold the word foothold is used in ephesians 4 27 where it says nor give place to the devil giving place is giving a foothold to the devil to be able to get into your life and so if we don't come to christ for cleansing on a regular basis if we have willful sins in our lives then we give an opportunity for a resting place in their lives and they're seeking a resting place and that's why christ says in verse 28 he said more than that blessed are those who hear the word of god and keep it holiness now let me put a caution here because 
we're not talking about just trying to keep God's law in your own strength and in your own power because that is not biblical sanctification. Biblical sanctification is God's life and his power working through you. Verse 25 describes the powerlessness of self-reformation. When he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Let me tell you something. Pagans can put their lives in order. Alcoholics Anonymous, that's all it is. It's pagans putting their lives in order, isn't it? They don't have uh, the power. They talk about a higher power. They do not have the power of the Holy Spirit from within replacing the emptiness and enabling them to resist Satan effectively. Pagans can improve their communication. They can learn to control their tempers, and yet they can do it for totally self, selfish interests and without the power of God. And Paul speaks of that as, quote, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. So Satan doesn't mind if you have self-righteousness, self-induced righteousness. What he's fearful of is when, when God's doing it through you. I remember my dad uh, telling me, and I don't know which one of us kids it was, but one of us kids was very uh, troubled with a neighborhood bully and uh, came and called for dad to go with them. And uh, when he's walking hand in hand with the dad, he's not fearful of that bully at all. Now, he would not take on that bully by himself. didn't matter how much he pumped iron, you know, and exercised for the next two, three weeks. But when he was hand-in-hand hand with his dad, no fear, fearless. And it's the same with us. Only Christ's resources are sufficient. Point number seven. This passage, again, is not about how wonderful and strong we are. It's about how wonderful and strong Christ is. And as verse 23 says, whether we are with him or whether we are against him. If we're with him and we're claiming the Spirit's empowerment that verses 9 through 13 talks about, then yes, even the small of us, smallest of us can plunder Satan's kingdom. Now, and don't get me wrong, Satan is still a strong man. He's still a roaring lion, still seeking whom he may devour. And Peter warns us about it. He says, you know, be on guard. You could get burned. And so he can still cause trouble inside and outside the church, and that's why we dealt with the first two sermons. But praise God. The kingdom has come. Christ's death has bound the enemy, and Christ has given every believer the necessary resources to push back Satan. Now, we're going to end with this next verse. Turn back with Luke 10, 17 through 20. <coughs> Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. In other words, that you won't be hurt by the enemy. That's just defensive, that the spirits are subject to you. One of the greatest things that we can do is beyond the offensive and take things out of Satan's kingdom, snatching souls out of the fire. And so he concludes with, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's the ultimate victory. It's salvation. And the ultimate spoils are snatching souls from the fire, from Satan's kingdom. But we don't want to just take souls and leave them there, do we? Because this mentions the palace and it mentions all the goods and we want to take the goods right along with the palace. And so we, according to the scripture, want to take every thought captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want everything in life to be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. And so politics and medicine, 
and um, you know, being being a lawyer, uh, legal services, everything needs to be put under King Jesus. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that this sermon and the last two sermons has encouraged you that um, you need to start taking on territory, being aggressive, being on the offensive. And may he receive all of the praise and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power that you gave us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you said in Ephesians that you have seated us with Christ in the heavenlies and uh, that uh, you have enabled us to have the power to trample on scorpions and by no means to be hurt by the enemy. Help us to keep ourselves, as First John uh, promised, that if we keep ourselves, the evil one cannot touch us. Father, I pray each person in this congregation would keep themselves in your way and would have a total confidence that greater is he who is in them than he who is in the world. May your name be blessed, Father, and may we be determined to be out and out for you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want us to end by...